staff got together at the beginning of the summer and we kind of came up with this really novel idea. We decided we weren't going to do that much this summer and kind of make it more fun. And, and we failed miserably because there's something going on all the time. Um, but it's cool stuff. If you would take your Bibles, if you brought them this morning, and open to 1 Peter. We're going to continue on in our series of 1 Peter. And we're dropping down to uh, chapter 4, verse 7. So 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. And let me just open with a brief word of prayer if I could. Uh, Father, we just um, would commit this time to you, this whole morning to you, as well as um, what we're supposed to be doing and committing our lives to you. And we just pray that you would challenge us and, and show us kind of the higher way, the narrow road that Christ calls us to in following him. And uh, we just thank you for this time and this opportunity to meet together as believers. And we pray that in Christ's name. Amen. All right, I'm going to read it through. Uh, I think we've got it on the board too, but I'm going to read it through, and then we're just going to take it verse by verse, kind of chunk by chunk. But uh, Peter, chapter 4, verse 7, says this, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. And offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one of you should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. And if anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. And if anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ, and to him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. So this is kind of like a little very practical just um, almost a very pastoral paragraph from Peter who's trying to talk to, to us, um, the audience, the Christians that he was writing to in that day and those that are going to read this or hear this. And he's just trying to urge us and encourage us. And so let's just start with that first verse. And he says this, the end of all things is near. You know, and I think if we read that wrong, like we're going to be Hearing the doors, you know, I don't know if you guys are classic rock listeners, but, you know, the doors had that song, you know, this is the end, you know, my only friend, the end, like, and it's this heavy, ominous song. If you ever saw Apocalypse Now, it's in that too. Anyways, um, it's heavy and it's ominous and it's like, you know, the sky is falling and this is the end and, and doom and, you know, the guy in the movie that's, um, kind of shaggy on the street corner, like, you know, the end is near kind of a thing. And I think we can read it that way because maybe the culture we've grown up in, that's not really what um, Peter's doing. That wouldn't really motivate anyone, would it? Uh, if you hear that, you just duck and cover. You know, go get in your basement bomb shelter or something. You don't really feel any motivation to do anything. And the Greek word here that Peter uses for end is the word telos, which is is the goal or the end or the purpose, like the, the, the kind of final thing that we're reaching for here. And so he's saying the consummation of this stuff, the, it's all kind of coming together. The, the goal, the purpose here is coming together. The end in mind is drawing near what, what it was all for. And he, and he says that and he thinks we're going to be pretty motivated. Uh, in a boxing match, you see that you only have a a few rounds left. Wow, it's time to really step it up. Or, you know, in the third quarter of a hockey game, I was just watching that on vacation, that movie Miracle, you know, um, the U.S. hockey team. And, 
you know, they, they go in for the third period and they give kind of that speech that the coach is really urging his players, like what you've worked for, like what you've dreamed for your whole life, this, it's all here and it's close and it's attainable. The end is, is in, in reach, the goal, the purpose. And it's supposed to motivate. And so he starts with that and, he, and, he's, and, and hopefully he's getting our attention. He's saying the end is near, okay, so listen up, uh, it's go time. It's time to engage. Um, just a little story. <laughs> the, uh, on was it Friday, Thursday? On Thursday, I got a call late in the day, and, and a bunch of guys from the church were going paintballing, you know? And it's been a long time since I've done paintball. So I, I met them, and they had already started, but I kind of jumped in. I went to go do the paintball thing. And, and it was kind of funny. I learned something about this whole idea of like engaging, like getting into it. So I get all geared up. And I see welts on guys, and I'm like, whoa. <laughs> you know, like one of our elders was there, and his ear's bleeding, you know, and I'm like, wow. Um, so it starts, right, the, like, capture the flag kind of round. And I walked, you know, to my side, and I went, and I walked, and I walked, and I walked, and I found a really big tree, you know, and, and all this stuff. And so the game starts, and I, I realize I'm so far back behind, like, my own team, and then, like, I start shooting little paintballs, you know, and they're not even coming close to where, like, the other team is. And I'm just like, okay, I'm, I'm not even in the game here. I'm not engaged at all. I'm, I'm so far removed that, that I can't even do anything. And, and then I was stuck behind this big tree, and there was nowhere to go. And so I just stayed there. And um, <laughs> I looked pretty cool when I was, like, one of the last people to get out, you know. <laughs> Um, but we do that, don't we? Like, we don't engage. We don't get in the game. Like, we don't join in. We don't, um, we just stay back there. Um, and, and Peter begins this whole thing, and I think all of his language is going to drive us towards this whole thing of ownership and being involved. He's going to drive us there, and he says, come on, you got to get motivated. It's go time. This is cool stuff. He says, so therefore, because of this, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Now, this is just like another one of those prayer verses, right? Oh, it's another verse on prayer. Yeah, yeah, I get it. I know. Pray. You're supposed to go pray. That's what Christians do. It's really not. It's kind of a different verse on prayer. And here's what I mean by that. Be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. It's so backwards from the way we do it. I mean, think of our prayers. Like all of our prayers are praying, God, help me be self-controlled. And God, help me get a clear mind and like be able to actually, you know, see things the way I should see them. And, and God, help like get me to my point of um, spirituality and all this other stuff. And we kind of always lead out with prayer and it's kind of a punt, you know. Um, God, you've got to. We're, we're willless. We we put it all on God. You've got to do all this stuff. And then if you do your work right, God, then I'll be this mature, kind of clear-minded, self-controlled Christian. Um, and if you don't, well, pff, prayer doesn't work. You know, it's on you, God. And I don't think the Bible encourages us to do anything really in, our, in and of ourselves, like devoid of where God's at. There's always this motivation of we've been called and we've been commanded, we've been encouraged, and we're supposed to glorify God. But the emphasis here is on you've got to, just like in a boxing match or in that hockey game, 
you've got to make a choice to focus so that you can attain your goal. And the goal is prayer. So you need to be clear-minded and you need to be self-controlled so that you can pray. And I think this takes on two aspects. The first one is discipline. Uh, we have to choose to create a pattern, in our, a pattern in our life to where we can actually remove ourselves and talk to God, listen to God, hear from God. Like it's, it's, it's something we have to work towards and build into our schedule. Like we, ha- we have to strategize it, period. It, it's something that we're expected to do if we're going to be successful at this. And I'm kind of going through a transition just in ministry where we're at. When we started, the elders, we had two elders at the time and, and myself, but we, the elders got together, and, and this was one thing I said. I said, there's one thing, if we're going to be known at Antioch for anything, this one thing has to be there. And it hasn't been a focus for the last year and a half because you, you put your head down and you plant a church and everybody works hard and we don't have enough children's workers and you know all that kind of craziness. But I feel like we're coming into a season now that we can kind of go back to some of the things we were called to. But this, this was the thing. I said, if we're going to be known for any one thing, this is what it's going to be. And that's solitude. It's kind of anticlimactic, right? I mean, what's that even, you know? We'd be known as the solitude church or the church that encourages solitude or the church that teaches people how to find God in solitude. What do I mean by that? And it, and it comes from my own experience, and I really kind of feel like solitude is the new Sabbath command. I mean, the, the Sabbath command was work hard for six days and then, you know, spend time with me on the seventh and rest and, and allow yourself kind of that freedom to be able to hear and to listen and all that other stuff. And life is so noisy and so busy for us, even on vacation, even on Sundays, even it doesn't matter where, it's just so much noise, that if we're ever going to hear from God or actually be able to pay attention, we, we've got to remove ourselves out into nature or to Sister's Coffee House or, or somewhere, somewhere where there's no noise and stay there long enough for kind of like all the chaos in our minds to, to, to settle down a little bit and, and get a little bit quiet. That, that, that has to happen. And, and that's called solitude. And when I used to try and work on these things. I started in, in grad school going, okay, I need to go get alone with God. And I'd do like 20 minutes and I'd be going crazy and I'd sweat would be pouring down my face. And, and then I'd like at 20 minutes, it'd like, it was like I was holding my breath the whole time. I'd just be like, ah, and I'd turn on the TV, you know. Whew, you know, that was tough. Uh, and then it was like, man, I'm gonna pray for like a half hour or get alone for like a half hour. And that was tough, you know. And and then pretty soon it was two hours and I loved it. And then I started driving from where I was at in L.A. all the way down to Pasadena where they have this thing called the Huntington Library. And it's basically these gardens and these art museums. It's this big estate. It's really crazy cool. Like Zen gardens with Japanese stuff and cactus gardens. And really, I mean, it's just really cool. And I'd go spend eight hours there just walking around. Actually six, ten to four. So I'm, I'm inflating it. Six hours. And then I'd get on the freeway, and it was like traffic coming back the um, 205 freeway. And whatever good had happened at the gardens was just gone like within five minutes. But it was this weird, like, 
back and forth. But, but it was like I looked forward to those times like nothing else. Like just going with a, with a Bible and a journal and you walk around. And it's just weird how when you're kind of alone and just praying and praying and just, just in nature, things begin to come to you. And I think that's the way David was and, and so much of the inspiration from the Psalms. But you're sitting there and you'll see like one leaf here and one leaf here and, and the light's shining on this leaf but not on that leaf. And all of a sudden you're going, you know what, that's kind of like life. Like, when I'm being blessed, it's not because I'm great. I'm nothing special. Like, like, I mean, I'm no different than this other leaf, you know, the other person that's not getting blessed, and life is really messy. And, and boy, I need to be humble. When good things come, just say, it's not me. I'm just blessed right now, and it's of God. It's nothing in and of myself, and, and starting to take credit. And, like, nature begins to teach you things. You know, it's just really wild, solitude. And so this church, like, the 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 vision, and so we've been talking to staff and elders in the last couple weeks. How do we slowly begin to begin at the center with leaders, and then slowly let that like trickle out to this church, so that we can help people go find God in solitude? Why? Because in solitude, you'll be clear-minded and able to pray. Why is that important? Because I. It doesn't matter what happens with people coming to a church service and whether you connect with a worship leader or whether you connect with someone giving a message, that's not the connection that's going to change your life. Jesus talks about, I'm the vine and you're the branches. And if you remain in me, abide in me, if you're like connected to me, actual like life is going to flow into you and you're going to produce much fruits. This amazing spiritual thing. And the greatest thing we can do as this church is, is not like get people's attention on us as great as that is, and education's cool and all, but to use that to turn around and say, here, let me help you go find God on your own during the week. So like Nate was talking about during worship, all week long, it's like you're building up momentum for the worship service. It's not like you're coming here and this is the be-all, end-all of your spiritual week. And so we have to discipline ourselves. We have to be clear-minded. It's a part of our vision, and so you're going to be seeing a lot more things where we're not expecting people to find solitude. We're going to just in a real organic way, just start networking and saying, how do we do this and how do we make it happen? How do we get coupons to Sisters Coffee Company so it's economical? I don't know. There's another part of this, and I'll go through it a little bit quicker. Be self-controlled. If you pop up, um, it's not on the screen, but I'll read it to you. If you pop up, just a few verses. This is what Peter says. He tells these these people that have heard about Christ, now he says, you spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and idolatry. And they think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation and they heap abuse on you. The world lives a certain way where you just gratify and you just run into it and you do these things that, that we would call wrong or, or not righteous or not things that you can say, here, this action I did, I offer that to you, God, as something holy, set apart to you. You just can't do that with these actions, right? And Peter says that a couple verses up, and now he says, be self-controlled so you can pray. Here's, here's something that happens. We usually wait till we walk into a landmine, and then we pray. God, my life's a mess. I just walked into a landmine and it's a mess and you've got to pick up the pieces and you've got to put it back together. You're the God and I'm not. You're the one that's strong and I'm not. So now you like, bring all this chaos back to resolution. You fix it. 
And so in the book of Proverbs, it says our own folly, a man's own folly ruins his life. And yet his heart rages against the Lord. We make decisions to walk into landmines and then we pray about it and when there's still consequences from that sin in our life the next morning or the next week or the next year, we begin to get frustrated at God and say, God, it's all your fault. And that's our prayer language. It's kind of that bitterness or that that bitter tone or that frustrated tone. And if we had just had enough self-control to look at that and say, that is not something that I can honor God with and walk around the landmine. Now all of a sudden, what do you think our prayer life's gonna be about? We're, we're clear-minded and free to talk about, geez, God, how do you want to use me? Or look at that person that's going through that and it's just hurting. How can I help them? How can I love them? How can I encourage them? And geez, God, you know, the conversation's totally different, isn't it? And Peter knows this and he's just saying, be self-controlled. Don't live like that. Don't walk into landmines so you're not in the middle of that. You're over here and you can actually pray. And actually hear from God because you're not obsessed with the circumstances that you've brought on yourself. And so I think some of us maybe this morning need to hear that. Just we've got to take the ownership and be willing to engage the level of avoiding some of the landmines that we might walk into. And if we do, we're going to be able to pray. It goes on in verse 8, above all. Love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Now this is a crazy verse. This is a crazy verse, and I think it's like, it's just like, um, <laughs> it's a crazy verse. The, I think if we shake it down, what Peter's saying is, is your friend that's, that swears like a drunken sailor, you know, is dropping the F-bomb left and right, yet loves people so well. Like, you just look at that person and go, how do they keep just loving other people like that? This person's just hot-wired to, to think about others, not about themselves. What, what Peter's saying is, man, that person's better off than the person that's adopted this defensive view of spirituality that says, I am going to avoid every little potential thing that might make me look bad or look wrong or not be fashionable within the Christian world, every little minutia of, of righteousness. And yet inside, there's like nothing. They could care less about other people. Matter of fact, they judge people and put them down and, and put themselves up lofty. And there's, there's selfishness and pride in there, yet they've cleaned themselves up so much. It's like that person, have you ever met that person? that you're like, man, that person must spend so much time on their hair or their makeup or their clothes, guy or girl, and they're just, they, they just so preen themselves, yet no one can stand them, you know? It's like that kind of in the spiritual world too, and, and that person, in some sense, is worse off than the drunken sailor guy that loves. Why? Because... The little things are like jabs. They're important, they're cool, it's good, but they're, they're, they're smaller in scale. They're little jabs. And love is a knockout blow. The magnitude of it is so much higher. and says, above all else, there's nothing on this, this plane. This is higher than all those other things. Above all else, 
put on love. And guess what? If you can just get that one thing right, there's like a trickle-down effect where it'll wash out some of those little like things that God's maybe still working on you in your life, okay? Now, I'm not, I'm not saying like become the next cussing Christian. I'm tired of cussing Christians, you know? There's like a gazillion of them. But I'm not saying go become the next cussing Christian out there, okay? I'm not saying like those things are not important. I'm saying they're less important, and Peter's like orienting us and he's saying, look, this is the supreme thing. And it's amazing. Even if you only have this, like it covers over a multitude of sins. The last hundred years in America with fundamentalism, one of the things that we went wrong with is we started looking at the Christian life through this lens of sin management. Sin management. And the whole goal was to manage sin to such a level that you were no longer like wearing any kind of sin patches. And you were clean of that. And the mistaken belief there is that we're ever going to be fully rid of sin. That, that, that legalistic person thinks it's red light, green light, and if I just get legalistic enough with my own righteousness, I'll never be told, you know, like red light to where I have to go back to the beginning and be guilty of sin. And that other cussing sailor guy, ah, look at him. Every time he does that, he has to go back to the beginning point. And look at how far I'm getting, and look at how far he keeps going backwards. And that's what the Christian life is about, is this sin management, and I'm going to get ahead through my own self-righteousness. My own self-righteousness. And the goal is, I mean, God is working on us to build in us Christ-like character. He wants us to be holy. But if we think in and of ourselves in our own little manipulations that that's where our righteousness is going to come from by being a mile down the road in front of other people, that that's our righteousness, then we've missed the boat. The idea is here, I'm right here with the drunken sailor and I might not cuss. And, and he looks at me and I say, you know what? My righteousness is complete. Not because I've been told to go back to the beginning line or I've made mistakes or, or whatever. My righteousness is complete because I've traded away whatever was good in me for what Christ did, which was all sufficient and fully complete. His righteousness is good enough, and he's saying I can use it. That's my goodness. And you know what? It frees me up to get really excited. Why, you really love people well. How do you do that? You know? Man, I can affirm that in you, and that's good. And, and we can have this dialogue, and it's no longer about my own self-righteousness and pride. I mean, it's just, just, it's just a weird game we play with this. Does that make any sense? Am I just confusing people? And so love covers over multitudes of, of sins, and it's, it's, we haven't heard that, have we? We've told sin, don't do it at all cost. When have we ever been told, oh, by the way, if you love, it's like it almost washes away some of the little idiosyncrasies that you've got. It's a crazy teaching. Let's keep going. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. This is another kind of funny one because hospitality, I've never met someone that's like, oh, I totally don't have the gift of hospitality. We think hospitality is so easy that we all kind of claim it. Oh, yeah, you mean like someone, one of my friends come over to my house and, and I'm glad they're there, you know, and I crack a drink for them or something. Oh, yeah, I've got hospitality. That's an easy one. And so we just kind of check the checkbox and move it over and on to the next thing. And so we all kind of claim this one. It's like, well, yeah, that person might be better at it, but it's not that I don't have it, you know. That, that person's really good. But we all kind of claim it and move on. It seems boring to us, you know. 
And here's the thing. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. The kind of hospitality that Peter has in mind is the kind of hospitality that that means we're going to have to give more than what we want to give. People are taking more from us than what we really wanted to give them. And it, and it like gives us that moment of tension saying, hey, they're abusing my hospitality. Or that's, that's not okay. Or, or where are their social graces? Or what's wrong with this person? Or I'm really beginning to not like this person. Or I mean, Peter envisions a kind of hospitality that's going to put it to the test. It's not just having a friend over. And he says, arm yourself and do it without grumbling. In the book of Proverbs, it says this. It says, if you go to a table and you're like eating, and the guy there that's feeding you is like counting the cost. Have you ever done that? Someone's like, oh, let's, there's a guy in California I knew, and, and he used to do this to me. But he'd offer to take me out to dinner, and then it was like, I'm out there, and I, I order an iced tea, and all of a sudden I see his head pop up from the menu, and then his head goes down, and then, uh, you know, you order like something else, like a steak, instead of like the sandwiches, and we all know, you know, that deal. And then he like, his head comes up again, and his head goes down, and, and you begin to realize he's like getting really ill with you, that you're abusing, and I'm like, you know, you offered to buy me a meal. And that's what Proverbs is talking about. He says, <laughs> when, you, when you find that you're sitting at the table with that guy, like put a knife to your throat, or like get out of it, run, flee, like just have nothing to do with that guy because that person, although there's a semblance of hospitality in their, their heart, everything you do is going to be something that they use to kind of break relationship. And the Bible talks about this. He says wisdom is avoid those people because they don't really get it. Hospitality is this. God is looking for community. God is looking for relationship. He wants us all, he wants us all to get along. Like a dad, you know? I mean, I, my people get along with each other. I want relationship, I want community. And one of the ways that's gonna be built up is that you foster this by welcoming each other in and, and there's a give and a take. And that person that only knows take, take and can't give, that person cuts off relationship cuts off community, and basically now becomes an obstacle, a barrier to what God is trying to do with his people. That person completely missed the boat, and they're a barrier to community. And don't be that person. Arm yourselves like to do it without grumbling. Uh, Benjamin Franklin said in the poor, poor almond, poor Richard's, poor almonds, poor Richard's almanac, he said, um, fish and, and guests smell after three days. You know, and if I struggle with this one, I'm a type A personality, and you type A's out there know what I'm talking about. It's like within 30 seconds, you're like, okay, what's the bottom line of what you're saying? Tell me what you mean, and then I'll usher you along, you know. It's okay, it's a minute now. Um, it's hard to be patient. When I went to Africa, it was one of the things that blew me away. These people will spend a whole day with each other before they get to the point. And they know how to be hospitable. Or someone shows up at their door. They're like going on vacation. And it's like a friend's coming to stay with them. It's like, okay, let's unpack the bags. You know, we're going to stay now. And you can, you know, you can spend the night with us. And we've got a long ways to go. But the idea is this is going to build the community. And so be ready to offer hospitality without grumbling. And Peter goes on. He says this. Each one of you should use whatever gift he has received to serve others. 
faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. Whatever gift you've received, use it to serve others. Now, we get this verse wrong because we read the word gift in reference to ourselves and we get excited. I love this book here. We saw it at the book table out there. It's called Strengths Finder. It's this online test. It's, it's really cool. There's like 34 different strengths and you get your top five and they don't like give you like an asterisk and here's your greatest weakness. And like, they just give you your top five strengths and it's so encouraging, you know? And you like look in the mirror afterwards and you're like, I am somebody, you know? Um, it's just a really cool book and you should take it if you haven't and stuff like that. Um, and I like it because how many of you have ever taken like a Christian spiritual gifts test? Anybody? Like those things are so depressing to me because there's only like seven things and whoever takes it, you're automatically a prophet and you automatically have the gift of teaching. It's like everyone I've ever known that's taken that has the gift of teaching and is a prophet, you know? And so I like this book because it actually maybe is a little bit more specific. Um, but we hear the word gifts and we hear ourselves and we start getting pretty excited because that's our favorite subject and we're like, that's right. I've got gifts. I've got things I can use. And then here's where we go wrong. Um, we don't use the, we don't get to the word serve. We start thinking about me, gifts. Now how do I get into a position of prominence? How do I use my gifts and the things that are good about me to get into a position of power, influence, prominence, uh, prestige, where I'm somebody? And we start playing this weird game. And so the person that sits out there looks at the person up here teaching and says, man, if only I, like, I could do that thing that he's doing. And then the guy up here is saying, geez, it's miserable. It's like a, a final every every week, and if only, like, I had the gift of encouragement like that person, and people actually liked me, you know, and then the person that has the gift of encouragement, like, is affirming people, and everybody likes that person, that person's saying, geez, if only I had that gift of administration, and my life was somewhat organized, and then I could be really important, you know, in the church, and do something, and we start playing this game of, if I only had that other gift, and we look in all these other lanes, at all these other people, and the book of Ecclesiastes says, all things spring from envy. All things bad kind of spring from one man's envy of another. And we all kind of do this circle and this dance and we think, if I only had that, I could get to a position or in a place where I would be more prominent in my own mind and we don't realize the gift we've got, the one that God gave us. We're supposed to use it. We're supposed to use it to serve and to build up the body. Paul, when he talks about the gifts, he uses the word edify. Whatever you've been given, whether it's musical ability or relationship or whatever, you use that to build it up and you serve. You serve. And you do it because you're being who God made you to be and he's happy and he's saying it's working the way I planned it to work. And that's cool. And we stop trying to think how we can get into a different position than what we've got. It's, it's kind of a huge deal because I think the church ends up becoming dysfunctional. There's a I was watching Braveheart the other day, reruns, and it reminded me that, you know, the gospel according to Braveheart, it's like it's all in there. Um, and there's a couple clips I'm going to show. I'm going to show one later, but I just want to show you this one clip now because I think it frames it for us. Inasmuch as you and your captains hail from a region long known to support the Balliol clan, may we invite you to continue your support and uphold our rightful claim 
damn the Belial time! Is the time to declare a king? Oh, oh, wait! Then you're prepared to recognize our legitimate succession. You're you? the ones who won't support the rightful Those claim. were lies when you first wrote them. Oh, no, that's true. Hey! I demand recognition of these documents. These documents were lies when you wrote them. Because you won't stand together. Well, what will you do? I will invade England and defeat the English on their own ground. Uh. <laughs> invade? That's impossible. Why? Why is that impossible? You're so concerned with squabbling for the scraps from Longshank's table that you've missed your God-given right to something better. There's a difference between us. You think the people of this country exist to provide you with position. I think your position exists to provide those people with freedom. And I go to make sure that they have it. You guys want to see it again? <laughs> oh. God gave you gifts to edify the body, to serve. He didn't give us or me gifts so that we could have more prestige and honor and build ourselves up. And we have to have enough faith to engage that game, the paintball thing, to get in there and, and make life about committing to something, playing offense, not just sin management and defense. So we actually get in and we start doing some stuff to make a difference. And yeah, that's scary and it exposes us. And it means that I have to rearrange my time and my values. And I, I can't make everything about my own agenda. I have to start serving. And what if people don't recognize? And what if I don't get any honor? And what if like, you know, it's hard to sustain that? And what if it takes more time? What if I go to bed tired at night? And it exposes us, yet we engage and we get in because that's what we're called to do. We were given gifts to serve and to edify. And, and you know, the middle school's with us. You guys are, you guys rock. You're in church and you're in middle school and you have an opportunity like in the next generation to do stuff better than my generation did. You guys can catch fire and like make church be better than what my generation is able to make it by actually finding out what God made you to do and doing it with like recklessness. It's so cool. I mean, there's so many things we can do and we've missed it. And I don't want to put myself in the position of those weird guys that are like arguing. I think that we do that sometimes. Churches. Like God gave you gifts to build up Antioch. Long live the name of Antioch. And would you just recognize your, your rightful place to submit to Antioch so that you can make this church shine and be better than all the other churches as if we're like competing with the other clans instead of what we're really called to do. And, and so I don't care if you go to Westside or I don't care where you go. Find a church and put down roots and be who God called you to be. There's a church called Church Capital C. The kingdom of God, the, the, the thing that God cares about. And Antioch's a part of it. But we're not the be-all, end-all. And so this isn't about a like build Antioch, sign up to find your place so that this little thing can be great. It's the bigger, broader thing that we're talking about. And yes, you have a place in it. 
through the church that you're at. I don't care if it's this one or another one. Just be who God made you to be. Don't be on the outside and disengage. And look at how this continues. And, and he hammers it home here just as we're concluding. And he says this. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. And then he like repeats it again like there's a couplet here. And if anyone serves... He should do it with the strength that God provides. And it, how do you do that? You've got to have ownership. You know, there's a lot of people on, on the Antioch staff that will speak for me. Well, Ken would want to do this. Or here, I'll sign that document for Ken. My, my name is real easy to forge. It's like block letters. Ken. <laughs> uh, I'll sign that for him. Yeah, I know that's good. I'd do the same for Ken. I'd do the same for Kip. We're on the same team. We understand what we're about, and we'll speak for each other. And I've never met someone in the church that would do that, walk up to a document or something like that and say, oh, I'll sign that for Ken. But the more we begin to realize we are the church and we're on God's team, we can speak for God and just like write God's name there, block letters. Yeah, I know what God cares about. He cares about the kingdom. He cares about people doing what he gave them the gifts to go and do. I can sign his name there. I'm on his team. It's not God's team over there and I'm a spectator and I don't have any ownership. I'm actually on it and I understand where we're going. So yeah, let me sign that. Block letters. And if we serve, it's like, man, I know that I'm going to do this with the strength that God gives. Man, if God gave a locker room talk, what do you think that would be like? You know? I mean, Bobby Knight, maybe. I don't know. Um, but if God gave a locker room talk, it'd either be like crazy motivational, or I don't know, maybe he'd really come out and be firing away. But I, I mean, you'd be riveted. You'd come out of there like you're shot out of a gun, you know? I mean, there's just, there'd be no like, like walking to the bench. You'd be running to the bench. You serve with the energy that God provides because what he's called you to do, we're, we're reaching the culmination, the fulfillment, the end, the goal, and he's stoking your fires and so run hard at it. And so let me just finish. We'll show that last clip. When I moved here, this is kind of what came to my mind this week as I was praying through it. When I moved to, to Bend, I remember being walking around and just feeling like, man, there's so much potential here. There's so much crazy potential for ministry, and I felt like there's this big iron like door kind of leaning in, and there's a couple people with our hands on it. And if just enough people would throw their weight into that door at the same time, like then it would just push it over, just flip it right over, and just be like a domino deal. And I pushed and pushed, and there's some other people pushed and pushed, and it was like after I'd been here two years, I was like, man, that's just really one crazy heavy door. And it's just not going to flip over unless everybody throws themselves at it with what they bring to the table at the same time. That 100% of the body is doing 100% of what God gave them the ability to do with the energy, the strength that God provides. And I'm, I can still see it. It just fly over. It just fly over. And so the visual, you know, Braveheart visual is this. So I'll show you one more clip. Come on!
was a shorter clip because right before that, there's all these people burning to death, and, and I didn't think that would be too cool. I mean, is there anyone else out there, though, that's just like, you know what? Life just keeps going by year after year, and it's the same, same old stuff over and over again. And I really hunger for something significant. Maybe something really cool that hasn't been done before that would actually be a cool enough memory that, you know, when we're in a rocking chair someday, we're like, man, I remember being a part of a group of people. And, you know, this is what we were able to do. We were small in numbers, but the significance was crazy. And it all came because everybody threw themselves at something. It wasn't one person or two people or three people. I mean, is there anyone else that's like hungry for that kind of significance and that kind of team and that kind of memory? And I don't care who leads out. Like, it's not like, hey, come follow me. I'm William Wallace. I mean, there's William Wallaces and Wallacettes like everywhere. If you would but lead, if you would just engage, if you would just take what God's given you and begin being that example of how to serve and to do it as if you're on a mission from God, I'm on a mission from God. Like, anyways, Blues Brothers. Um, I, I would be okay if half this church left. If 20 more people stayed that actually were going to serve with everything they had. And I know there's some people out there that are just maybe a little bit jaded from past church experience. Guess what? If you live more than like a week, you're going to have a bad church experience, okay? And God never wastes a hurt. God didn't give you a bad church experience in the past so that you would quit church. There's another reason he gave that experience to you, to either build character or to educate you or to give you a ministry that you never would have been able to have had you not had that bad experience. God never wastes a hurt. And so I Whatever your experience is, whatever the wound or the scar, God didn't give you that past church experience so you could quit. And I know there's some of you out there that are just just hungry that in our generation we'd be able to see a work of God that was actually exciting in that, that brief little span we had and we could say, man, I was a part of a team. It was amazing watching that movie Miracle and the the that team never even really reunited 100% after those Olympic Games, the U.S. team that defeated the Soviets. But they all had a stake in what happened. They all took it with them. They all had that pride. They all had that memory. They all still like, had this respect for each other. It was unbelievable. Same thing with the Band of Brothers, if you watch that HBO movie. And you look at those guys over the years after they fought in World War II. And I'm just thinking, man, wouldn't it be cool if Antioch blew up in 10 years and just ceased to exist? But right before we did, we'd done some stuff that was so cool that even if we never like all come back together again someday and we're all in different churches serving or whatever, we all go, you know, it was pretty wild what happened in those days. And it's so right there. The battering ram, the door that's leaning in, it's so right there if we would but all throw ourselves at it with the strength that God provides. Let's pray. Father, we just, we, uh, we know that we're a part of this whole thing, that we have to choose it, that we have to have discipline, that we have to prioritize it, but we also know that you can move through us. And so um, we commit our side, but also ask just for help, that you would encourage, affirm, give wisdom, give strength, give ideas, give creativity, just pour it out.
poured out on us just so that we could just jump at it. Um, just release all that energy, that desire, that passion to see church be something different than maybe what was handed to us. And just pray that you would just make it clear that we'd feel compelled and we would just throw ourselves at it. We pray that in Christ's name.